Welcome to episode six of Talking About My Generation, a pop culture podcast dedicated to the children of the 80s, 90s, and even into the 21st century. If you're new to the show, welcome. On this podcast, we'll discuss movies, video games, and television shows that we grew up on. And this week, I'm again joined with my friend Rich from Seattle. Uh, Rich is going to join us here, and we're going to talk about movie Ghostbusters. Yeehaw. Sorry about last week, folks. Had a headset. Was terrible and listened to it, so I apologize for last week. You know, don't even worry about it, Rich. I mean, it's you're sounding a hell of a lot better than you were last week. I, You know, I did the best I could with the audio, but it happens. <laughs> it happens. It happens. So, Ghostbusters. Let me, let's Thanks. start off here. Let me ask you, what were your thoughts on this movie? Well, when I first saw the movie, uh, of course, in the theater, I was like, wow, okay. This this is, you know, and the funny and it was like serious and it was like the pro, who won, who didn't want a proton pack oh, when, when you were a kid? Now, I, I did want to say this one thing is that when San Diego before Comic-Con became Comic-Con, it was at the San Diego Concourse. Now, those that don't know San Diego very much, the Concourse is a very, very small convention place, a meeting place, maybe uh, half of what Comic-Con is today. Isn't it like now, downtown in the middle of, like down like right next to the courthouse or something? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's right down there. Now... For those that have been to the concourse for a Comic-Con, like I said, it's very small. Now, interesting fact is that during the time that the Ghostbusters movie came out, they had the Ectomobile and Proton Packs from the movie. Oh, you're kidding me. Nope. And oh. in the back of the Proton Pack, is a little red placard and says if you're if you're close enough to read this you are too close and will get radiation sickness <laughs> I sat you know and this is before cameras on cell phones you know and I was like oh and I didn't bring a camera with me because that would have been the coolest thing in the world oh I mean, that's great, too, especially when you consider that there's a line in the movie and he, it, where Bill Murray basically says, why Why should we worry? We're only walking around with unlicensed nuclear accelerators on our backs. That, that it, and then, in, well, I think we're both in agreement that the second one was just done for, uh, to give other people good funny lines for the second movie. Oh, but yeah. But it had, it, in the uh, courtroom scene, it had a, a perfect thing with Harold Ramis saying, or no, Bill Murray saying, well, I hope these things still work. And then Harold Ramis says, well, I hope so. They have a half-life of 5,000 years. <laughs> I forgot about that. So it's like, <laughs> wow. No, no, no. Another thing is that you, you may know this, uh, Doug, is that our friend from uh, where we used to work, Brian Fear. Mm, name sounds familiar. He he may have uh, left before. You, I think you kind of uh, got there just as he was leaving. He goes to Comic Con as uh, um, Venkman. You know, I'm probably saw him. I probably seen him there around the last couple of years. 
He actually made the San Diego Union Tribune as one of the uh, Blues Brothers. Oh my God! He put he went in as Jake, John Belushi's character. Oh man! So he he he's actually got a site. He's actually got an ectomobile that he's trying to refurbish. You know, I wonder if that's the one that they had because they they had like two or three ectomobiles down there at Comic Con. Uh, the year that they did the 25th anniversary, they actually had a copy of the Nectomobile down there. And it was not the original one that was shown in the movie. They actually said that, but they said it's a copy. And I'm wondering if maybe that was his, you know. It it very likely could be. I mean, he, he, that was his, he had a website up for it and everything. And and it's like a little, little project they got working on it. Wow. Well, I know I've been seeing there's a guy who's running around here in town, and it's only been recently, within like the past couple of years, I've seen him. The guy has, he has a Mercedes station wagon that's white. He's got the Ghostbusters logo on the side. He's made it up to look like an Ectomobile or an Ecto-1, and it's the funkiest thing I've ever seen because you see it. He's got the light bar on top of it. He's got some stuff that looks like a giant vacuum or something on there. I'm like... What the hell is this? And you see it driving down the road. You're like, that is not, that is not a hearse. That is not an old Cadillac hearse. It ain't the Ecto One. What the yep, hell do you think yep. you're doing? But but it goes to show also is that how the movie went ahead and unlike we talked about last week with Star Trek, how it made a generation, you know, look at ghost busting. Oh yeah, I mean, even now you're still seeing that the that. People are interested in ghosts. Some of it came from this movie. Some of it came from just our curiosity with, you know, what happens when we die. Uh, But really, I mean, you see this huge change. And Ghostbusters was so influential on the pop culture movement. Uh, Oh, definitely. Definitely. What's funny is that this movie, it came out back in 1984. It was originally supposed to be uh, just a comedy film. Uh, Ivan Reitman directed the film. It was written by two of the stars of the movie itself. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis basically wrote the entire screenplay. They actually knocked it out. Uh, what happened is that Reitman and Ramis and Aykroyd, they basically went into a bomb shelter in Martha's Vineyard and sat there for three weeks coming up with a first draft of the movie. And they kept trying to sell this movie around. And people were like, uh, uh, ghosts, really? Uh, you're going to make a comedy about horror stuff? And you know what? It was, I will say this for this movie, it really was one of the top films. Uh, you know, 1984, the only other movies that you had that really took the top spot away from Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop. And it was, it took it away for about three weeks, and then Ghostbusters came right back on top. Mm-hmm. So... When you look well, at that, that's pretty impressive to me. That well, I mean, I gotta say, I, I saw the movie three times myself, at least three times. I saw it twice in the theaters, and I I was loving it, you know. And they did a, I saw it once when it first came out, and then they did a re-release and put it back into theaters in 1985, and I saw it again then. Mm-hmm. And still, this this movie is probably it really holds a spot in my heart. I mean, there's. There's a lot of great lines out of this movie. A lot of great stuff. I love, 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 love this film. Well, my one of my favorite lines is in the first one where he goes, Aykroyd goes, listen, 
Do you smell something in the library with the I, camera? I don't remember that. Was it like they were smelling the, the ectoplasmic ghosts or something? Well, it was a play on words. So listen, everybody listen to me, and then do you smell something? Oh, God. <laughs> and, and then, you know, it's like, yes, no, no regular person would stack books like this. With the yes, book. and it, it, of course you know that somebody actually did. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I felt sorry for the poor person that had to stack those books. Oh, now now I do have to say Ben Edlund's uh, special effects for the movie. Oh, now they were you know by today's standards they're very crude. They're but you know what for in 1984 you know when you got. Um, you know, all these special, big special effect movies like last week we talked Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Star Wars, Emperor Strikes Back, uh, all these other movies. And it was simplistic with the special effects. It I really mean, was. Uh, I mean, go ahead. Go well, ahead, I was going to say that with regards to that, a lot of people were saying because they said you don't do a big effects movie. As a comedy, you don't mix the two at all. And that was the whole thing throughout Hollywood for the longest time that was that you simply don't want to mix those two things together. And here we came along with Ghostbusters in 1984, and it really broke the mold in that. We started seeing things more where you're seeing more special effects showing up in comedies. It just wasn't done before that because everybody thought, oh, nobody's going to watch this. And Hey, guess what happened to Ghostbusters? It knocked it out. It made two sequel, you know, it made a sequel. It made two cartoon series. It had video games galore. Uh, you know, supposedly they're working on a third one. I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. But I, I mean, you look at all these things, the toy lines that came out of it, everything with this movie. It was it was blew everybody's minds away. I mean, you know, even even with the music People still remember this. The classic song from the start of the movie, you know, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Yep. You know, and yep. you, you ask anybody, any child of the 80s, hey, you look at them and you just say, hey, who are you going to call? And they'll respond. They they know the answer. Yep. That, that's 100% correct. And it's, you know, speaking of the, the cartoons, is that, you know, basically they, you know, of course didn't have the original characters characters our original cast doing the characters for the cartoons but believe it or not that those cartoons were supposed to expand off the first movie and they really did they they did do that for a lot but i we'll get into that later because i, I want to cover all of that on another podcast and yeah. i do want to talk about the differences with real ghostbusters and ghostbusters and Extreme Ghostbusters and all that crap. So. <laughs> but I, we will be coming back to that, folks, so don't sweat it. That'll be a future podcast. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll jump in. We'll jump into the plot here a little bit. Uh, I'll try and give you guys like a little 60-second synopsis of what happens with this film. Uh, basically, it starts out with three misfit psych- parapsychologists. You have Dr. Peter Venkman, Egon Spengler, and Raymond Ray Stantz. Uh, they basically start out they're they're working for Columbia University. They get hired on uh, New York Library. New York Public Library has an incident at the very beginning of the movie with a librarian ghost who shows up. Uh, they go in. They find out who she is. They meet her. And they, they actually have contact with the ghost. And 
scares the pants off them. They take off. Uh, when they get back home, they find out that Columbia University has fired their asses for being complete goofballs. And so they're they're going, well, what are we going to do? And so they decide that they're going to go into the ghost busting business. So, you know, they end up mortgaging Ray's parents' house and boom, you know, here here we go. We start into the firehouse. They pick up the Ecto-1. They start start in with their scenes. Uh, they get their – their very first call actually happens to be from uh, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, her character named Dana Barrett ends up having an encounter with uh, Zool who happens to show up in her fridge. Uh, it's a demon from uh, past right around 6,000 BC, I think it was. Uh, Marion. Yeah. But uh, they show up there and they have they have that going on. Eggs explode. They show up with that. From there, uh, that night while they're sitting there talking to her after they get done, uh, they get another phone call. And it turns out to be the Sedgwick Hotel who comes in and has one of the most famous characters showing up in, in the movie throughout the entire series, Slimer. They encounter Slimer. They capture Slimer. They toast the... They toast him, and that was the very first capture of a ghost that they had done. Uh, they go through from there, and they start seeing that more and more ghosts are showing up throughout New York City, and it's kind of turning into this whole event horizon. Uh, you know, they go through. Uh, Dana ends up, while all this is going on, uh, Dana Barrett ends up getting possessed by Zool. Her next-door neighbor, Louis Tully, he gets possessed by uh, Vince Clortho. Who happens to be the key master? You have the key master and the gatekeeper. Zul is the gatekeeper. Vince Clortho is the key master. Uh, they end up, you know, they really want to be kept apart because once they come together, they're going to summon Gozer, uh, who shows up at the end. Uh, Ghostbusters get arrested through all this here because they're using, again, unlicensed photon accelerators or un unlicensed uh, nuclear accelerators. Uh, EPA comes in, shuts them down. Uh, and the ensuing chaos, Zool and Vince get together. Boom, Gozer's summoned. And the mayor of New York goes, what the hell's going on? We need to call you guys out to defeat Gozer. They get out there. They meet up. They see Gozer. Uh, at Towards the end, we have another very famous character, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, who shows up. That turns out to be Gozer, who's going to destroy the entire city. They cross the streams, close the doors. Boom, explosion. Stay Puft Marshmallow Man ends up spraying, you know, 40 feet tall worth of marshmallows all over New York City. End of movie. Yes. Spoiler alert. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you haven't seen this coming from the movie being in 1984, uh, hello, where were you? <laughs> now, even with the new generation. Now, interesting that you went with the Cedric Hotel. Now, I don't know if you know this. But during the movie, while they after they got Slimer, they they went ahead and did a got him in the trap, and when they were going <clears throat> now uh, about the cost on this, watch Harold Ramis because Harold Ramis will hold three fingers to his cheek, and he'll say, "So we'll need to at least charge you three thousand dollars to hold the the entrapment," and it was they did it so subtly. That if you didn't look at it, um, you wouldn't have caught it. It took me at least four times. And when I bought the DVDs, I, I was like, oh, he's got three fingers up. 
so folks watch watch the movie if you haven't watched it you know they're both on dvd now i just saw that last night i i don't i i I didn't even notice that i'm gonna have to go back and catch that in there then because i know that he was going off and he's like it's like well it's gonna be three thousand dollars for the capture of the ghost and then we have a we have a special going on for the proton packs where we're only going to charge you a thousand dollars and then there's all the cleanup and everything it's basically going to come down to five thousand dollars and it's like and the guy's like flipping out what do you mean five thousand dollars well we could always go and stick him back in there i yeah, love that that. The, that scene is just you know how they basically got started yeah and, and it it also got started, you know, it also basically started the premise of the movie. You know, let's catch some ghosts. Now, Sigourney Weaver's character at the end. Now, you remember the scene where the hands come up? Yes. From the couch. Okay. So, again, spoiler alert, folks. Watch her carefully. Because one of the hands, you know, it's basically people underneath the chair that are just grabbing parts of her anatomy. Well, one of them actually grabs her top and exposes her bra, and she quickly pulls it back. I thought I saw that last night, and I, I almost rewound it, and I'm like, no, no, that can't be it, right. It, and it is, because she actually, Sigourney Weaver, made a comment about that in an inter- interview about the time Ghostbusters came out. She's like, yeah, one of them kind of got you know interested and just you know pulled pulled the top and I had to pull it back. Somebody so getting it, a little fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotta be careful with those, you know, those workers. They'll get fresh when don't worry, you don't see them. But it just, you no, know, I actually recently went looking for a PKE monitor just to see if you could build one. And there are actually garage kits that are out there that you can actually build a PKE monitor. Does it look like the original PKE meters from the yep. movie where it has yep. little antennas that come out and everything? Yep. You can move the antennas oh. up and down. Now, I was like, okay, you know, because now with ghost busting and all this becoming mainstream, you know, with Ghost Hunters, uh, Ghost Hunters International, you know, they got the K2 meters, which are basically the PKE monitors. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be so cool to actually, you know, make a kit, even though it's not a real ghost-busting equipment. Well, it, depending upon who you talk to, you know, you get the people that are fanatics that'll tell you that it is. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, of course, you know, like like we talked last week with Star Trek, you'll always have the people that are like, no, this is what God said, and oh, yeah. we shall play it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's the fanatics. You always have, you always have at least one or two tinfoil hat type people, you know, that are out there, and you're kind of like, everybody has to shake their head at it. You know, I'll say this: I, I think that there are ghosts out there. I haven't seen a whole lot of real proof for them yet, because a lot of times when you start having people go in and look, they start finding things like, oh yeah, we're getting a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, electromagnetic interference, and then you start looking, and they find out, uh, yeah, standing at this particular spot where we are, there's a loose wall plate over there that's causing a lot of interference. Standing yeah. over here, you've got some broken wires. You've got a fluorescent light standing above me. Yeah, of course, I'm going to pick up a lot of this stuff. Yep, yep. You know, so yep. 
I, I will take that into effect with a lot of it. You know, again, some of it you have to take with a grain of salt. But hey, that doesn't mean that they're not out there. I'm not going to say that you know that they're not. It's just we don't know what's on the other side of the veil. Tell somebody actually comes back and talks to us and says, "Hey, this is what it is. This is what happens when you die." And you know, I'm sorry. I know people are. I know that you have the religious zealots who will stand out there and say, "Yeah, Jesus did that." You know what? Whatever. <laughs> If you want to believe that, that's fine to me. It's mythology, just like the Greeks were in mythology, just like the Romans were mythology and all that. But I will get off my soapbox now for that. Oh, please preach soapbox. Soapbox. <laughs> yay, yay. But, <laughs> you know, I, it goes, uh, you know, a lot of times when I was in San Diego, there was uh, my old boss's house had a white lady. So yeah, I mean, I, I he's had the weird, you know, how how you know isn't it funny. It, we'll get off tangent here for a second. That most ghosts, quote unquote ghosts, that you hear about are either a woman in white, a woman in black, or a usually those two. It's usually a woman in white, which indicates that she's like. Wearing her wedding dress or something like that. Okay, right. well, but the woman in black is usually you know the witch of the group. So it's it's weird. I mean, so anyway, my soapbox is done. Oh, Let's no. get back to have fun. Yeah, what we'll do here, we'll go ahead and we'll jump into the cast because the cast was really kind of important for everybody. Uh, you had a lot of big names, and some of these people were were Saturday Night Live alum. Uh, you have Bill Murray as Dr. Peter Venkman. Bill Murray, he really was, in my mind, he was what stole the movie. He made this film because without him, you would not have you would not have half the humor that was in this film. Uh, they gave Bill Murray some of the best lines in this movie. I don't know if half of them were ad libbed or not, but I mean, just some of the stuff like when they're at the end when they're at the end and they're talking to the mayor about what's going to happen. Bill Murray has one of my favorite lines, and he starts off, you know, they're going back and forth as to what's going to happen. It's going to be 40 years of destruction. It's going to be earthquakes. It's going to be, uh, you know, just mass, you know, mass destruction here. Dogs and here. cats living together. Mass hysteria. Yes. Human sacrifice. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Love that line. That I will remember that always. One of my favorite lines. Uh, moving on from there, we do have Dan Aykroyd. Uh, everybody I'm sure remembers Dan Aykroyd as being, you know, one of the blues brothers from Saturday night live, uh, guy, he really is. He has, he's still going on and he's still in a lot of the stuff. Dan Aykroyd, actually, the funny thing with this movie, he really does believe in a lot of this stuff. He has a lot of interest in the spirit world. Uh, he, he really is kind of, he, his personal hobby on his on the side is parapsychology he does you know, i mean he's not a doctor or anything like that of it but he does follow a lot of that stuff and he's always had an interest and i want to say back like 2008 or 2009 he actually went to uh some school some uh some university that actually has a parapsychology department and he was actually there talking with these guys and they were kind of like Oh, you're just an actor. And he's like, no, I actually know about all this stuff. That there, I know what that machine does. I know what this machine does. 
he's talking and interacting with these guys, and it kind of blew them all away that they're going, wow. And and Aykroyd's talking. He was the one who actually started coming up with some of the names of stuff that actually show up in the movie. Uh, when they're first talking about doing the research back and forth about uh, looking into Zool and seeing where they can look up, uh, stuff like Tobin's Spirit Guide. Tobin's Spirit Guide actually does exist. Uh, they are actually It actually is a real book, and he threw it into the movie, and it was kind of like people just thought it was a joke, but they use that throughout there. They use it in the cartoon. It actually is a real book. It's just it's hard to find, but it, it's something that Aykroyd loved, and he, he still to this day loves to talk about those things and loves to talk about parapsychology, which I've always found kind of interesting. Uh, I do want to kind of also jump in here going down the list. We have Sigourney Weaver, uh, being Dana Barrett picking up in there. She really was, you know, I kind of have to say this. She was in 1984. She was pretty damn hot. You know, uh, I did like her in this film, but I think that she was more badass in, in the aliens movies. I like that better of her. She was better portrayed in there. Although, I will give her this for sleeping four foot above the bed. I thought that was pretty nice in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next person I do want to go into, uh, Harold Ramis. A lot of people, you've heard the name, you look at him, the guy does look like some sort of dweeb. And that he played the perfect role for this movie. Being the fact that he was walking around, he had the glasses on, he was a doctor, he looked like Somebody who would stand back in, you know, basically all his life, he was standing there with comic books and test tubes and science experiments from the time he was six. That's what you looked at and thought when you saw him. I, I thought he did good for this film. Uh, seeing him in some of the future roles that I've seen him in, uh, I didn't realize. I, I saw him in Knocked Up as uh, Seth Rogen's dad. It was, he was playing the character of Seth Rogen's dad. And I was kind of like, I looked and I'm like, holy shit, that's one of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> Just seeing it was kind of weird and surreal, you know. Uh, but he also has another great line in the movie. Annie Potts, she's trying to flirt with him. You know, Janine is trying to flirt with him and you'll see it and it's kind of like, uh, what's going on? And she's like, oh, Egon, do you have any interests or anything? And he says, I have a collection of spores, molds and stuff. That I keep, and you know, it, it was just I laughed when I saw that. I'm like, somehow, that seems to be very fitting for him. <laughs> and he was the resident geek of the group. I mean, Ackroyd was the tech tech technician. Ackroyd built everything. He was the mechanic for the car, and the uh, and Egon was more of the electrician for the ecto containment unit. That's right. He built that whole thing that stored in the wall uh, to keep the traps in there. Uh, I, I just, he really was, I, I, you know, I still to this day think of how, how Egon was portrayed and just some of the stuff you kind of realize that, hey, this guy really is some sort of genius, but people aren't wanting to recognize that. And then well, and, uh, and with the ecto-containment ecto unit, He'd made it so easy that even you know Bill Murray's character could do it, and and then when they got Ernie Hudson in, you know with the latest dream trap is clean. How, how many people have heard that saying and said, "Okay, where'd that come from?" 
Yep. So it it was, you know, I mean, granted, it came from Dan Aykroyd, but it was, you know, uh, Harold Ramis's character that created the the unit to begin with. Yeah, you know, it was just he he was. I I know he's not been a huge character, like he hasn't been a huge actor, but the mm-hmm. man has done a lot in Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. He he does a ton of writing, and that's probably why a lot of people don't see him. They think, oh, he's dead or something like that. No. Harold Ramis is still kicking. He's still going strong. You know, like I said before, he and Aykroyd have, uh, they're wanting to write a Ghostbusters 3. Again, whether that happens or not, I'm not sure. Only time will tell. You know, we'll we'll go from there on that. A couple of other people I do want to talk about here and touch on. Uh, Ernie Hudson as Winston Zedmore. Uh, I, I loved Ernie Hudson in this film. I mean, he was... I kind of got the feeling like they threw him in as, you know, the, you know, I don't want to say stereotypical, but they, they throw him in as the token black guy for the film uh, because you always see one. It was like throughout the 80s, you always saw one black guy that would show up and he'd always be scared shitless about whatever was going on. And I thought it was kind of nice because Ernie Hudson's character didn't play anything like that. He was actually there and he was kind of like, I see this stuff. I'm not scared. Hey, I'm going to handle it and just deal with it and move on. Well, it's like when they were interviewing uh, Ernie Hudson's character and Annie Potts is going through all these things. She goes, he goes, I don't care what you guys do. As long as there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe whatever you say. Yeah. Now, in the second movie, which was so funny, everybody was doing in the train in the tunnel, they were doing the, the echo scene. Yeah, echo, echo, and then you know, then you know, Ernie Hudson's character did it, and then they went Winston, and it was just like, ooh, that that's not fun, that's not fun at all. (laughs) Yeah, and then he gets he ends up getting run over by the train and slimed, and it's like, okay. (laughs) Uh, Now, next character, he was really one of my favorite characters for this film. Uh, He he does show up throughout throughout uh, Ghostbusters 2, and he shows up in the cartoons as well, Rick Moranis. He plays the nerdy accountant who lives across the hall from Dana Barrett. Uh, He plays Louis Tully. And I I loved him in this role. I mean, he was just kind of, oh, yeah, uh, well, I'm going to have some friends over, and we're going to sit here around. I I got up there a bunch of clients, and, yeah, we're going to have some stuff. And I've got got a whole case of water that I got, low-sodium stuff. And, well, it's all really healthy for you. I, I loved his character in this film just because he really was that whole nerdy thing. And I know this sounds funny, but I was actually able to relate to him as a kid because <laughs> I was also nerdy as well. So, Well, I think we all were. I mean, I mean, everybody that's seen this movie, even me, you know, it's like, yes, he was the resident. Well, I wouldn't call him a nerd because he's he was more out of out of place than everybody else. You would almost call him a, in today's sense like a dweeb or something. Cause he or a spaz because he really could never remember to un- keep his door unlocked. He was always getting locked out of his apartment when he was talking to Dana. It's oh funny. yeah, and he's like, "Help! Anybody help me in, please!" Oh yeah, you know? when the party's going on, hey guys, yeah. it's me, it's uh, Louis Tully. Uh, I live here. Can somebody open the door for me, please? Yeah. I love that, <laughs> and that was just kind of an ongoing gag throughout the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we also did have, as we mentioned before, Annie Potts. She does have 
a uh, small appearance in the film as Janine Melnitz, the, their uh, secretary for the Ghostbusters. Uh, really wasn't all that special to me. It was kind of like she was just more annoying than anything else. So there, yeah, um, you believe in this, you believe in that. Hey, this is what's going on. Do you have a free-floating corpse or what? What's going on? And it was just like she was whole. She was all bored with the whole thing. And I, I understand why they were trying to have her do that role, but I don't know. I've liked Annie Potts in a lot of other things, and this was not a good role for me, for her, in my opinion. I gotta say, the best line that she gave in the entire two movies was when she there was a knock at the door. She went to the door, opened it up, saw a police officer officer there, and said, "Picking up or dropping off?" Yeah, and, and it's like dropping off. It, you know, it's just nonchalantly. And I think she went with the whole because if you remember, she said, "I've quit better jobs than this." Yep. And I think she just went with the whole board uh, receptionist, you know, secretary type thing. It worked. And, yeah, I mean, and it worked. It worked for her character. But in the second movie, they, you know, she kind of went beyond that and then started dating uh, Louis Tully's character. Yeah, that was kind of creepy to me. It was just it, like, you know, I, I mean, I get where they were going with it, but they they put that horrible orange wig on her for the second one. And it was just like, why, 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 why did you do that? But, you know, hey, I wasn't the ones who made that decision. Ivan Reitman, uh, that's one thing that I think he should have been shot over. <laughs> but Yeah, well, I mean, it's not as bad as Joel Schumacher, you know, but we won't get into that story. Yeah, that's that's one, you know, hey, people know about it. Schumacher just stopped directing. <laughs> I think he has, hasn't he? I think so. I think people have laughed him out of the industry after Batman, uh, what was it, Batman Forever, whatever it was. Or Batman and Robin, I think it was. was. Yeah. Uh, now, there is there is one other character that I do want to touch on real quick, just because uh, there were some interesting things that happened with her, a little bit of trivia that I found out. Uh, we have Gozer. Uh, Gozer was played by a Czech model named Slavica Jovan. Uh, that was actually the woman who you see walking around in that funky, like bubble type suit that she was wearing in the start of when you first see Gozer. Uh, she actually, they were going to use her voice and she starts when she says the line choose and perish, uh, when they're having to choose the form that Gozer is going to take to destroy the city. Uh, she basically said that Bill Murray started laughing when he heard it. He goes, yeah, we can't use that. Her voice sounds more like she's saying Jews and berries due to her Slavic accent. So they ended up picking up a woman named Patty Edwards to come in and just do a voiceover for her. Uh, it was just kind of one of those funky things that it came out and it was kind of like, uh, yeah, we need to fix that. Well, I can understand the need for a different voice. I mean, uh, I mean, when Darth Vader... You know, I hate to say it, I'm a Star Wars freak, so David. nobody liked David Prowse's voice because he had that Scottish accent. And I've actually heard heard that uh, on the interviews. And so when they went with, you know, James Earl Jones, oh, that that was, you know, Darth Vader. I mean, you didn't even realize it. It was just, you know, you couldn't imagine anybody else playing that character. Yeah, voicing that character. Yeah, and it's kind of the same way with some of these other characters. I mean, you hear the voice, and it's like 
that's that person. It, it's nobody else. You know, even even with Batman, when you hear when you know when we get into talking about uh, Batman the animated series later on in the podcast, we'll talk about people like Kevin Conroy, who is he is Batman. Everybody who hears him goes, "That's Batman." Even though yeah. you had people like Michael Keaton doing the voice doing Batman, and you had. Uh, Christian, whatever his name is from the new series. Christian Bale. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, you had Adam West. And Adam West, yeah, he's Batman to me as well. He's he's that classic 60s Batman. But when I hear Kevin Conroy's voice for Batman, that is it. And I know it. Well, and Mark Hamill played the Joker. Yes, and people don't know that. But anyway, I'm sorry. I don't want to get off too much off yeah. on a tangent with that. <laughs> We'll we'll have to do Batman the animated series because that oh, that alone could be a good podcast right there. Oh, definitely. You've got so many characters that are in there, so we'll we'll definitely have to get get together and do that one again later. Uh, now, I do want to kind of talk about some of the production stuff that did happen here with the film. Uh, really, again, as I mentioned before, with Dan Aykroyd being so fascinated with paranormal, that's really kind of what started this whole movie. Uh, it was conceived as a vehicle for himself and John Belushi, who was actually supposed to be acting in the film. John Belushi was actually supposed to be Peter Venkman, which I think would have been interesting had he not died. But then again, I don't know that it would have been the big success that it was. Because again, Bill Murray coming in, he was Peter Venkman for me. Well, I think a lot of people looked at it like it's Blues Brothers with ghosts. Yeah. And and I think that that's you know, I think that that's what they captured there with it. And it really kind of was. I mean, it, with the exception that Aykroyd didn't play quite so much a straight man for the film, right? Uh, he really kind of was more of a "Hey guys, check this out" type of thing. I did this, but I, you know, kind of off in his own world. But he still managed to fit in somehow with the rest of the with the rest of them. Uh, now I do want to say that the original story, as written by Aykroyd, really was very different from what we actually saw on the screen. Uh, in the initial version, you did have a group of ghost smashers, which traveled through time, space, and other dimensions, combating huge ghosts, of which Stay Puft Marshmallow was one of them. Uh, they also wore some SWAT-like outfits, used wands instead of proton packs, which I'm not sure how that would have gone over. I could just see them doing the whole, well, ding, ding, ding type thing, you know. I don't know that it would have gone over well. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of them, the storyboards originally did show them wearing Riot Squad type helmets uh, with movable visors. Kind of like, I, I guess they kind of still carry that over into the movie that we saw. Because you do see uh, Ray with those goggles when he when they first go into the Sedgwick Hotel. And he pulls them down off top of his head as he's looking to try and spot the ghosts. And I think that that's kind of what they were going for with that. But... What they had, I think, worked better in this film. Uh, now, I do want to touch real quick on the name, because originally it was supposed to be called Ghost Smashers. And when they were standing outside, the, they actually changed name kind of early on in the movie, uh, where you see they did this, the filming of the scene towards the end of the movie. That was one of the first scenes that they did. And they had the crowd around outside uh the main tower where everything was going on and the crowd was out there and they had, they were telling everybody, okay, we want you to scream ghost smashers, ghost smashers, ghost smashers. And I have right in the stand there and he, everybody's screaming this out and he goes, yeah, you know what? This isn't going to work. Let's try ghostbusters. Let's try having everybody scream ghostbusters instead. And so he's like, 
They're doing it and they're going, and he goes, yeah, that's going to work. That'll be perfect. Well, turns out it wasn't exactly perfect because after they did it, he kind of went and he said, hey, do you think legal's going to have any problems with this? No, 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 it'll be fine. Well, um, Filmation owned the rights to the name Ghostbusters. Uh, apparently there was a, there was a horrible, horrible TV series back in 1975 that involved three guys that were called the Ghostbusters. And they ran around, they had an ape, they had, it was, it was like a, a guy in an ape suit, another guy in a zoot suit and somebody else. And they were kind of just these bumbling slapstick comedian types that ran around. And they actually did a cartoon, Filmation did a cartoon called Ghostbusters uh, that showed up. And they had kind of a, like a, it reminded me of like a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang type car where it was flying and it would transform. And they had like this ghost logo that the car would actually come to life and talk to everybody. And that series, it ran for, I want to say like 14 or 15 episodes or something like that. And just, it was horrible. Uh but they ended up taking the name Ghostbusters and running with it. And it actually became basically this huge iconic thing that that uh, in 86 or 80, 85 or 86, Filmation decided they were going to pick up and ride on it. And that's kind of where the whole name issue came up. And they really started doing it. And that's why you see the real Ghostbusters as opposed to Ghostbusters that everybody knows uh, for the cartoon. So I always thought that was kind of interesting when I first read it. I was like... Huh, wonder what this is all about. No, just out of curiosity, have you ever read the book Ghostbusters? No, I I didn't know that they had a book. Yes, there there was actually a novelization for it. Now, in the novelization, it it appeared that the proton packs gave the user a personal force field. Really? Yes. So that when they turned down the proton packs, a force field went around him. That's how they survived the uh, explosion with Gozer and the uh, the uh, oh the, the basically the explosion with Gozer because it was saying that the force fields had saved them. Oh, that makes now, a lot more sense now. It, and a lot of you know because I was like really. At, now, supposedly there was a cut scene uh, after the Sedgwick when they were all getting ready to put their proton packs in, and it was actually filmed. It was on the cutting room floor, but it was filmed and talking about it, it was a person talking to Egon on what would happen if you shot the proton beam at Superman. <laughs> you know, because, you know, it's a new technology. They didn't know about it, so... And he said, um, well, it would vaporize him. <laughs> I can totally it, see something like that. Of course, Superman was very popular at this time, this era. That's <laughs> Exactly. So it was just like, interesting. You know, and they went on. I can't remember the actual verbiage on what they were doing, but that was kind of the gist of, of what was said is just like, yeah, this is, you know, but, uh, you know, this was during the time when, you know, all these movies came out and they had to do a novelization for it. Well, there are a lot of novelizations going on. I know Star Trek had, uh, they had a graphic novel that I remember having, uh, Indiana Jones, Willow, uh, you know, Temple Alien. of Doom. I remember reading those. 
you know, and they were great. And I, I did not know that they had a, a novelization for Ghostbusters. I'm going to have to go make a search on Amazon and see if I can find a copy. Yep. I, they actually did one for the second one, too. Okay. Thank you for telling me that. Now I have to spend some money. My wife is not going to be happy with me. <laughs> well, you may, I don't know if they're on Google that you can read them online, so that way you don't cost you any money. I may have to but, I may have to try and look on Google or something, see if maybe – even if I can find them in the library or maybe an ebook version or something. So definitely have to look into that. Uh, see, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that I wanted to touch on here. Uh, I mentioned about – mentioned here i'm just looking over my notes sorry guys uh i did touch on the bomb shelter with them going through the scripts uh let me see oh one thing i do want to bring up here they originally screened this show uh they screened the movie here for people uh when they did the test screening of it half the effects they hadn't actually gotten the effects in like when you see them when they're in the sedgwick and they're shooting the, the beams all that still had to be drawn in and people were like, oh, you know, well, I don't know. They, you know, they were missing that. They were missing, you know, some of the ghost effects. They weren't actually showing up there. They actually had like little dolls that were being waved in front of the screen when they first did it. Uh, but the audience still loved it, even though it was still half-assed. And they realized that it was half-assed, but they're like, yeah, we love this. And it was kind of like, um, you know, Aykroyd and, Aykroyd and, and Reitman and Ramus, they were kind of like all standing around and going, Wow, um, I think we might have lightning in a bottle here with this. And I'm kind of glad that they decided to really go full force on this. Because it was, if you haven't seen the movie yet, guys, please spend an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, two hours, sit down and watch this film. It's it's just so incredible. And it's a great family movie, too. Yes. I mean, yeah, I, I will tell people that there are, that they do say shit a lot in the movie, and it's usually kind of like, oh, shit, something's coming at us, you know? Uh, but, you know, I I remember seeing it when I was in the theaters. I want to say I was like eight or nine years old, and I loved it and still to this day love it. And I would have no qualms about letting, you know, my 11-year-old niece watch this film. I would have no qualms about, you know, a six-year-old watching it. Now, Mind you, there are some scenes in there which may scare the crap out of them, but if you're a good parent and you're aware of it, hey, I think they'll have no problems. Uh, now, I do want to kind of touch on the music for this film. Uh, really, when you hear it, anybody who hears the song, they hear those opening bars with that funky synthesizer music, you know what's coming. You, it, I I have to be, say it's probably one of the most recognizable themes for any movie ever. You know, I mean, you've got Jurassic Park right up there, you know, people know that one, you know, we all know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, you know, people know that one for Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters. Yes. Jaws. You know, but when you hear these things, when you hear them, you realize you hear them and it's kind of just stuck in your mind. Ghostbusters had the same thing. You know, when you hear da 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 dum da 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 dum you know exactly what the what's coming next. And people know the lines, they start singing it out loud. Uh which is actually kind of funny because when they did the music video for Ray Parker Jr., uh for the Ghostbusters film, 
they had scenes. They actually had cutscenes where they were out in public and they were asking people, who are you going to call? And this is, you know, they were on the streets of New York filming this. And they asked people, who are you going to call? And they had them going, Ghostbusters. And that got into the music video, which kind of blew up for the movie. Uh, one of the other things that was kind of memorable about the, about this music video that they did, uh, it held the top spot on the charts uh, for three weeks on the Billboard Hot 100. It was the number one music video spot on MTV as well for that same time. Uh, but they had movie scenes that were interspersed with a lot of actors, and they actually had like this call-in scene where you see people picking up the phone to call the Ghostbusters, and they had people like John Candy, Chevy Chase, Danny DeVito, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, a whole bunch of people that were put into this, basically to pick up the phone to call them, which I always thought was kind of nice that, hey, you have a lot of famous people that were put into this, and a lot of them just said, yeah, we'll do it. Why not? This looks like a good looks like a good vehicle. And I always thought that was kind of fun to see stuff like that. I do want to also talk here, some of the trivia. We'll go ahead and go into some trivia here, just at the tail end of this. Uh, I did not know this, but the voices, uh, when you hear them saying Zool, uh, with the demons in the fridge, uh, that voice was done by the director, Ivan Reitman. And also, when you see the green ghost Slimer, uh, he was he was actually the voice of Slimer as well, that whole type noise. Really? Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. I, it was just one of these little tidbits. Uh, I know that when they did the cartoon that uh, they had the voice uh, actor Frank Welker, who Frank Welker is a god in the voice acting world. If, if you guys don't know who he is, look him up. The guy's been Freddy for, Star, uh, for uh, Scooby-Doo since 1969. Uh, and he's been doing voices. I, I mean, like... When you look at a lot of movies for stuff where they're calling for dogs and cats doing voices and stuff, Frank or Welker, demon. yeah, I mean Frank Welker has done. You don't realize he's hidden in so many movies, whether it's cartoons or you know just fill-ins, and he does this stuff. So I always, I always, always, and still am impressed by Frank Welker. I also want to touch. I kind of mentioned this before to you off-air. Uh, Louis Tully the next-door neighbor that Rick Moranis came in and played. Uh, he originally was going to be filmed uh, as John Candy was going to come in and do it, and he was basically going to play this whole conservative business type. And I want to say at the time he was he had something else that he was getting ready to film. It might have been Splash. Uh, so he couldn't actually come in and take care of it and do the film. So he said, you know what? Why don't you contact my fellow alum from SCTV? Contact Rick Moranis. And they kind of went, you know, uh, Aykroyd and Reitman kind of went, uh, yeah, that sounds good. Because a lot of when they were doing SCTV, that all was filmed out of Canada, but it was filmed out of uh, uh, Toronto, I believe it was, which is, you know, hop, skip and a jump from New York. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can get Rick Moranis to come down. And I think he really fit the role for this, even though he wasn't that that uh, casual businessman type. He ended up playing that nerdy account, and I think he really worked well for this film. Well, what's so funny is that uh, both movies were basically done by comedian shows. You know, uh, Saturday Night Live, The Not Ready for Primetime Players, and as you just mentioned with Rick Moranis and John Candy, the Second City TV. Yeah. Both, uh, both at the time, you know, the se- you know in the 70s, were the shit that. You, you, yeah. you watched them. They were funny. 
And, you know, when when uh, John Belushi died, you know, rest his soul, uh, and the, the not ready for primetime players kind of disbanded, you know, it was nice to see the original uh, players, you know, Aykroyd and uh, uh, Bill Murray back together to do a movie. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because this movie really is, it's kind of a who's who of Saturday Night Live in a lot of senses. Because uh, Ramis was – he was a writer for SNL for a while. Uh, you know, they had he, – he was going to have uh, Belushi come in and play a role. Uh, he was also going to have Eddie Murphy come in. Eddie Murphy was actually supposed to be the black guy, you know, the token black guy in the film. Uh, and he was replaced by uh, uh, Ernie Hudson because he couldn't actually come in. He He was going off to go film Beverly Hills Cop instead. So he couldn't actually come out and do the film. So they were like, well, who do we get to replace this role? And I think that's kind of why Winston Zedmore really isn't that big a role within the film. I mean, he he is a role, and people know him. He's iconic for this film. But at the same time, he wasn't wasn't like a huge part of it because it was kind of like, well, do we throw him in or do we not or how do we fit him in? I think they were kind of just watching to see how Ernie Hudson was going to fit into the role, which I think he did well with it. I think he carried it off okay. Well, he he played the straight man. Yeah. He really played the straight man because in the whole uh, mayor's office, he goes, basically, I've seen shit that'll turn you white. And, I, and, I saw that. And I, I heard that last night. I kind of looked and I was like, wait, did he just say what I think he said? <laughs> and, 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 you know, in, in a room full of... Uh, you know, white people, that that's kind of a funny thing to say for a black guy. Oh yeah. But it, and you know, the you know, one character you really haven't touched on. And he is kind of the pivotal role of what really happened with the Zool and Gozer and all that is the EPA guy. Oh, uh yeah, I should have mentioned him, William Peck. Yes. Uh, and, go ahead. It it was I'm sorry, it, it was just the whole in the mayor office, you know, they go in, you know, he's like Bill Murray's, you know, funny line is, yes, this man has no dick. Well, it, it's kind of funny because he actually does play uh, in the Ghostbusters video game they came out with a couple of years ago. Uh, they bring back all the original cast members to play in the in the video game and they have William Peck and they keep making some jokes in there about how. He he doesn't have a you know he's not he's just kind of a, a giant dick. Well, no, he's pecker, <laughs> you know. And I just I love that. And it was kind of like you caught little references in that game, but they really didn't really push that in the films. At least not that I remember. They might have done it in Ghostbusters two, because I know that Peck does show up later, and he's still kind of the same old asshole that he was in the first film. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, now that is one other thing I do want to touch on real quick because it I loved these games. The the series actually did spawn several video games for different platforms. Uh, I know that they had a Commodore sixty four version because my dad when he had the Commodore sixty four he showed it to me and I started playing it with him. Uh, kind of sucked because you had to like have two people playing at the same time in order to go through and capture ghosts and bring them down to the traps, but. It was a fun game. It was cheesy as hell, and it was definitely 8-bit graphics. And they actually did do a port of it over to the NES uh, 
I want to say like maybe uh, six months or a year later after they had it for the Commodore 64. Uh, they also had it for uh, they also had the same version for the Atari 2600, which was it was even worse graphics because of course 2600 wasn't that great a pl- uh, platform at that time when you looked at the Nintendo and what else was out there. Uh, but yeah, they they did have some great games for this. They they uh, managed to port this over. They have continued on the series and continued on a lot of the writing here. Uh, for the last Ghostbusters game that they've come out with, uh, which they did have on the Xbox 360, the Nintendo Wii, the PlayStation 3, uh, they kind of picked up with with the whole storyline, which I really kind of liked. Uh, they they had Bill Murray, they had Dan Aykroyd, they had Ernie Hudson, they had all the original characters come back to do this video game, and it kind of picks up after Ghostbusters 2. It's I want to say it's like maybe five or ten years after Ghostbusters 2 happened. And the storyline picks up, and you come in as a recruit that's walking around. And Bill Murray kind of makes some comments about that. He goes, you know, it, it says, well, what's your name, kid? And Bill Murray says, I don't want to know in case something happens to him. You know, we'll just call him the recruit, the new guy. You know, and I, I always thought that was a nice touch for it, considering what they were trying to do and that they didn't want to have to keep saying a particular name that really wasn't you. And they wanted to just say, that's you playing it. So I think it worked out well. Well, believe it or not, from the rumor groups that I've heard, is that the concept for the original third movie was that they were going to pass the torch. You know, and I heard that too. I, I Some of the rumors, and I, I kind of didn't want to go there with this, but I'm going to go ahead and go with it anyway. Uh, some of the rumors I heard for what they wanted to do for Ghostbusters 3 script was one of the rumors was that they wanted to have uh, they wanted to have Bill Murray and... Sigourney Weaver, the, the child that you see in, in Ghostbusters 2, Oscar, they wanted him to come in and be kind of this next generation of Ghostbusters because it would be right around that perfect age when you look at it. I mean, 89 to 2012, he'd be 30. So he'd, he'd be in his 30s. He'd be perfect to pick up the reins and be the next generation Ghostbusters with this aging group that's currently out there. Uh, and they were going to have really kind of that happen. Uh, supposedly one of the other lines that they were going to have was that Bill Murray was going to die and come back as a ghost. Like he was only going to be, uh, really kind of in the movie at the very beginning. And then he was going to come back to kind of haunt him and lead him on, which I was kind of like, I I can see that working, but at the same time, I don't know how well it would work. Well, I can't see Bill Murray going and sitting through, uh, you know, CGI stuff that he would have to do. To, you know, look him like a ghost. I can't see him do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see him doing motion capture, but at the same time, I could see him getting really pissed off about it because that's one thing that I have heard is that a lot of people say that he's a different, uh, difficult actor to work with. Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. That is true. But uh, I do want to touch... I, I have this movie here being that there were so many good lines in this movie... I have just a few that I wanted to bring up here that we haven't already mentioned. Uh, one of my first, the first ones that I heard that I love, and I still use this to this day, uh, happens right after they see the librarian, after she's had her scare at the very beginning of the movie. And Peter Vinkman kind of does this whole interview with her, and he's like, so Alice, I have a couple questions to ask you. Uh, first one, any history of like, you know, uh, schizophrenia in your family? 
And she's like, well, my uncle did think he was St. Jerome. Okay, I'll take that as a yes. Uh, <laughs> any uh, drugs or alcohol that you're on? No, no, no. Okay. Just sorry, have to ask. Last one that he asks is, now, are you, Alice, currently menstruating? And one of the other, her boss basically looks at her and goes, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, exactly. What's that got to do with anything? And and the line that I love is that Peter Venkman looks at him, you know, Bill Murray looks at him and goes, hey, back off, man. I'm a scientist. I love that line because it was just, it was so perfect. And, and, you know, it's kind of like, hey, this is a geek homage. You know, anybody who is a geek who actually loves science, perfect thing to say. Perfect thing to say. You know, and I've actually seen, uh, when I go to Comic-Con every year, they have, you know, even now, again, 1984 to 2013, when we're doing this, even now, they still have a huge Ghostbusters following there at Comic-Con. And they have a shirt that I've seen that has the Ghostbusters logo on the back, and on the front it says, hey, back off, man, I'm a scientist. And I've seen that. I've seen that one too. I might have to buy it. I don't. I don't know. I just. I love this movie. I keep seeing it. And I keep thinking. Ah, I don't know yet. <laughs> but you know that. And oh, the other one when they first come out of the Sedgwick Hotel and the doors are opening as they come out of the uh, midnight buffet area, and Bill Murray again has this line: "We came, we saw, we kicked its ass." Loved it. <laughs> And the guy's like, "What? You see? What was it? What was it?" It was just like it, that was a perfect line for that that scene right there when he came out. Oh yeah, and yeah. I agree with you one hundred percent. I mean, Bill Murray. You know, basically this was a Bill Murray line fest. Oh yeah. It, it, I mean, the other actors. Yeah, they got their. I mean, like I talked on Star Trek is you know actors get lines for you know and a lot of them say. Well, why don't have this many lines? But Bill, this was a Bill Murray movie. Even though it had Dan Aykroyd, held Ramis Ernie Hudson in it, it basically, you know, it was Bill Murray's show, like Groundhog Day. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I'm still glad it. it we did see the other characters, and I still did like the other characters a lot. Uh, you know, I mean, I related more to uh, Dan Aykroyd and Egon Spengler. You know, Harold Ramis's characters. I related more to them than I did to Bill Murray. Uh, part of that was part of that, I guess, was just because when I first saw the movie, you know, I was younger. What do you expect? You know, I'm not going to be into the guy who's checking out girls. You know, hey, I'm going to chase around Sigourney Weaver. That was not a big thing to me. Now, I was at the time. I still thought that girls were icky. So, <laughs> but, cootie shot. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, I I love this movie. Uh, I really can't say that enough. Uh, the fact that it made you know Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I know a lot of people are kind of bad on some of the some of the film critics. Rotten Tomatoes being one of them. Uh, however, Rotten Tomatoes uh, they actually have certified this film on their list. They hold it up as I want to say like number eight in their top one hundred, and they rated it with ninety seven percent freshness. They love this movie even now. It still holds that up there. So I'm kind of glad to see that sort of thing happening. Uh, that, you know, this movie that comes from our generation, that it's still prevalent, people still like it today. Well, I agree. I mean, like, like we were saying before, is that this is a movie that is timeless. Like, the, you know, the big, you know, big Star Wars, Star Trek, 
and and alien franchises this one little movie that was probably a sleeper hit in 84 that what it was had became become so timeless is nowadays it's it's still like like you said the rotten tomatoes it's still it's fresh i mean the there's no lingo that can't transfer time yeah i mean even with some of the pop culture references that they had showing up in the movie like they have Larry uh, Larry King that shows up and he's doing the talk show on TV on the radio and you hear his voice. They have Casey Kasem coming in and he does a little bit. Yeah, people are like, you know, I'm sure that people would still go, well, okay, I don't know who those people are. You know, you and I know who who those people are, but you know, hey, our kids are probably like whatever. But it still translates well because you realize that okay, it's radio voices, it's TV people showing up. Yeah. And they still carry on, and it still works. Everything about this film, even the car, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm sure if we ever get to the point where we ever have flying cars at some point, people are going to look at this and go, "Well, that kind of dates that those cars aren't flying around." But even then, you have this old Cadillac hearse that was originally an ambulance that they showed up with in the film, and that was that was something that at that time was you know 25, 30 years old for that car, and yet it still fit into the movie. I. You know, the Ecto-1, I will remember that. People will still remember that car as an icon. That, you know, it'll be it'll be the DeLorean, the Ecto-1, Knight Rider, you know, Kit. Those cars, people will still remember them even though they're not something that you see on the streets anymore. Yep, yep. Uh, I agree with 100%, 100%, my friend, 100%. So, well, I think we're going to tie it up here because I, I really don't have anything much else to say about the film here unless you have more that you want to put into it. Go right uh, ahead. No, I pretty much have, have kind of said my whole fun time in, in with uh, 1984. All right. Well, I'll, we'll go ahead and say uh, that wraps it up for this episode of Talking About My Generation. Uh, please leave – Please feel free to leave us feedback in iTunes, uh, which, by the way, we actually did have somebody who gave us some feedback here on the show. Uh, uh, let me see if I can pull it up here real quick without getting too disturbed on this. Uh, but they, we did get some feedback, and it was actually very positive. They gave us five stars, which I thought was excellent. Uh, let me see if I can get in here. Hopefully my computer doesn't freak out on this. Let's see. Call tech support. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> inside joke folks inside joke yeah being that we work you know we've worked tech support for many years none of us really want to have to go back to that oh come on uh i i'm sorry folks i have to go into the talking about my generation page which i'll, I'll throw in this quick uh you know this quick plug for it uh we do have talking about my generation which you can find us on facebook at talking about my generation uh, I am currently working on trying to get an actual website up uh, for the website for talking about my generation itself. Uh, so you'll be able to download the feeds from there as well as listen to it online. Uh, currently, I right now have it at sprzout.podomatic.com, but that will hopefully be changing in the near future. It's just a matter of getting some money together to, to go get the web hosting space. Uh let me see. Here we go. Our feedback, we got uh, the first feedback says, Great trip down memory lane and very funny. Was entertaining from start to finish. Keep up the good work. That comes from Mommy of 3C Girls. Uh, so thank you, Mommy of 3C Girls. We do appreciate the feedback. 
please leave us more feedback if you would. Uh, it does help us in the ratings. It does look good, even if it's negative. You know, give us constructive criticism. We'll work with it. Uh, also, I want to let you know that uh, you can also send us a tweet here. I am at S-P-R-Z-O-U-T. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can shoot us an email over at uh, mygenerationpodcast at gmail.com. And, Rich, if you want to throw in for your Google+, Plus, if you want people to know who you are out there, you're welcome. If not, no biggie. <laughs> sure, sure. My, my Google+, Plus is Rich Hagland or Richard Hagland. So if you want to, I'm, I'm on Google+. Plus. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about, you know, what you thought of the show. If I'm uh, not good or good or not bad, you know, let me know. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and sign us off here with the Ghostbusters theme song, and you guys enjoy.